Let's open our Bibles to Obadiah. We had a topical study on it. We uh, did a lot of background work, so I'm, I'm just going to hit the highlights of this book. But as we look at you know, Obadiah, if I would sum it up, um, I would say, be careful how you treat Israel. And uh, we'll actually go to Matthew 25 when we end it. But if I would sum up this book, it would be that as Obadiah is speaking against Edom, which is Esau, when we did this as a topical study, we went back and we, we just laid out why it is that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. And um, really, Obadiah is Esau. Uh, the Edomites are descendants of Esau. In the beginning, it was just one man uh, who cared not for the things of the Lord, his birthright, married Canaanite women, Hittite women. And so what began small now has grown into an entire nation, and it's magnified like about 100,000 times. Uh, God did not say at the beginning that he hated Esau. He had to wait until he became a nation and revealed the things that caused God to hate him. And really what it is, when the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem, it was the Edomites that not only did not help Israel, but actually cheered and actually prevented those who were escaping from Nebuchadnezzar. They cut him off, and we'll get into that as we get into our study tonight. So verses 1 to 14, the vision of Obadiah. It's only one chapter long. It's the shortest uh, book in the Old Testament. The vision of Obadiah, this says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the cliffs of the rock, whose habitation is high. And I didn't mention this on Sunday when we went through it, but this is actually a reference to Petra. Uh, the, the rock city, a fortress, um, who you say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground. And though you exalt yourself as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars from there, I will bring you down, says the Lord. If these had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have st- uh, stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, Would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. And all the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men of Eden and understanding from the mountains of Esau? So they're synonymous. Edom is Esau. Then you mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. So in these first 14 verses, we have God's prediction of the future judgment um, that God is going to bring Nebuchadnezzar as his instrument to defeat them. Now, the reason for the judgment is given to us in uh, 10 through 14. It says, for your violence against your brother Jacob. So we have here Jacob and Esau. And this whole question of why did God love Jacob and despise Esau Well, the nation was not, it doesn't tell us until the end, uh, the nation that came from Esau became a godless nation because Esau was a godless man. And he didn't care for his birthright. He sold it for a bowl of soup. And and the things of God really meant nothing to them. Just like today, what's so precious to you and I, uh, many people could really care less about. And the Bible says that things will continue. Uh, Matthew 24, the Lord says, these are just just the beginnings of sorrows. 
compared to what's coming as we're watching current events uh, spiraling down. The theme, for, the theme for our conference in Omaha was revival. But when I spoke on it, it was through the lens of the reality of four churches that will exist in the last days. And I had a chart that I put up, and Thyatira is one of them, and, and Smyrna, and um, Laodicea in Philadelphia. Um, none of them, except Philadelphia, is really, is Philadelphia and uh, Smyrna are the only two that nothing bad is said against them. But the thing that I wanted to point out is that they weren't a mega church. So when, if you look at Christianity today across the board, we see Roman Catholicism, we see dead Protestantism, we see Laodicea, they think they're rich, that would be the prosperity gospel, that doctrine, we see that out there. And then we see Philadelphia, it says, well, not very big, you don't have a lot of strength, but you haven't denied my word, therefore I'm going to keep you from the hour that's going to test the whole world. So it's not just a local judgment. Whatever this trial and test is, is a worldwide test. And I'm going to keep you from it. So part of our study was about the rapture. Uh, the mega church today has compromised for the sake of um, what finances or whatever. The sake current be politically correct. Philadelphia was not politically correct in any way, shape, or form. And I contrasted that to the church of Thyatira. They, on the other hand, had committed spiritual fornication. And he describes spiritual fornication by saying, you've allowed Jezebel to come in and commit spiritual harlotry, adultery, spiritual. And what was that? Well, she introduced the worship of Bill, worship to Israel and by marrying Ahab. And that's why they had the big shootout up on Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of of Baal against just Elijah. And I basically told them that that represents Roman Catholicism. The Church of Thyatira, I believe, is Rome. And because they have added to and taken away from the Word of God. I'll just list the main one. The main one is they've just simply taken out the second commandment and threw it away. Thou shalt not make any graven image unto the Lord your God. And I told them, I was, I've been in St. Peter's Basilica, and I saw a statue of, of Peter there, and his toe's been kissed so many times it's almost gone. <laughs> a kissed-off toe. <laughs> and um, yet there's, uh, the list could go on and on, works plus salvation, purgatory, the worship of Mary, and the list goes on and on. That's called spiritual fornication. And because they won't repent of it, it says, I gave them time, but they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't repent. Therefore, I'm going to cast them into great tribulation. And you don't, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to read Revelation 17 that talks about this world religion that was the headquarters of the world at the time that John wrote it in 96 AD, City of Seven Hills. It's Rome. Okay, I can't go down that rabbit trail too long. But anyway, here, um, as we look at why the Lord loved Jacob and hated um, Edom, is they did not care for Israel. So pick it up in verse 10. For your violence against your brother Jacob, all right, now we're talking about Jacob, but now Jacob has grown, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now we have the 12 tribes, and we have the birth of the nation of, of, of Israel. So out of one man, Jacob came, uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In that day that you stood on the other side, in a day that strangers carried captives his forces when foreigners entered his gates, that would be Nebuchadnezzar and the destruction of Jerusalem. And cast lots for Jerusalem, even you as one of them. They were on Nebuchadnezzar's, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar's side. But you should not have gazed on the, the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, 
nor should you have rejoiced over the children of, of Judah. In the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of their distress. Uh, you should not have entered the gates of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hand on their substance, so they not only... Um, um, we're glad that it was happening, but they began to loot. As they were fleeing, they were going in and um, looting Jerusalem. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those who were escaping. Now, we're, there were those who got away, uh, made a break for it from Jerusalem. But as they were running away, it was the Edomites that cut them off at the pass and held them until they could turn them over to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the reason God says he's going to bring judgment upon them. Nor should you have delivered up those whom remained in the days of their distress. Now, because of this, beginning with verse 15 through 18, we have the results of the judgment of Edom. For the day of the Lord upon all the nation is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. In other words, you reaped what you sowed. How you treated my people Israel is how I'm going to treat you. And I'm going to expound on that a little bit after we get done with this chapter. Your reprisal shall return upon your head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, you shall, shall all the nations drink continually. They shall drink and swallow. And they shall be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance. And there will be holiness. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau, stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. There are no Philistines, there are no Edomites, there are no Hittites, but there are Israelis. And that's what's foretold here. It ends in verses 19 uh, through 21 by saying that Israel will be the ones that eventually possess the land of Edom. The inhabitants of the south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the inhabitants of Philistine lowland, they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captives of the host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as, as far as Zarephath. And the captains, captives of Jerusalem who are in uh, Shepard shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion. Now that word um, there, saviors, should be translated deliverers. It's a more accurate translation actually says so um, in, in my cross-reference here, but I looked it up. Um, and the kingdoms shall be the Lord's. Here, God is moving forward towards the accomplishment of his purpose, and that is putting his king on Mount Zion. He says that he will turn and turn and overturn the nations until he comes whose right it is to rule. It's clearly ending the short book talking about the Edomites, their descendants, where they came from, but it brings it full circle, how it's going to all end up. And nothing, gang, is going to change this. Absolutely nothing is going to stop the Lord from setting up his kingdom. Um, again, the other topic that I had was a famine for um, the word of God and it was great. I said, this is great. There was first, first uh, Samuel chapter 3, but we had just finished Amos. And that's a book that has that same quote in it, that the word of the, the Lord was rare, like a famine. And that's a condition of the church today. They, the church does not have discernment. It cannot understand really what's happening in the Middle East because they, they don't have a biblical perspective. Um, most of the church services today are about you, <laughs> believe it or not, how to be a better you. People like to hear 
um, you know, they like to hear about themselves. And um, we were all taking pictures because whenever we have these conferences, we get to see people maybe once a year or so, taking group pictures and stuff like that. But whenever you take a group picture and then you go, see here, look at it. Who's the, who's the first person you look at? <laughs> yeah, you look at yourself. Were my eyes closed? Was I blinking? Was I smiling? Do I need to take it again? Was that a good picture of me? <laughs> no, we're self-centered. And yet, that's the opposite. As we get into the nature of the Lord tonight, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh for one reason. He knew the nature of his God. And he hated the Ninevites. And he didn't want to go there. He was afraid they might repent. And he knew he was mad, madder than a hornet. But to drive the point home as it pertains to Israel, I like to take any opportunity I can to get blessed. So blessed are those who bless Israel and cursed are those who curse them. Turn to Matthew 25. And this is often um, misused, misquoted. And I want to put it in the proper context. So as you turn to Matthew chapter 25, picking up with verse 31, we know that there's at least 1,007 years left before Peter says the elements will dissolve with a fervent heat and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. People say you crazy Christians are always talking about the end of the world. Nonsense. End of the world isn't coming for at least 1,007 years. Good place for an amen. amen. Now how do I know that? How do I know that? I quoted something in the beginning of my study that is 47 years old by Hal Lindsey, the intro to the late great planet Earth. And he nailed every single thing that is happening today. A departure from the word of God. Um, instead of having a biblical gospel, you're going to have a social gospel. And um, he, it was a list of about 20 things. And, and everybody wanted my notes that I got from Hal Lindsey's, uh, um, what, what he wrote about 47 years ago, and just how it's being fulfilled um, exponentially today. So when we read verse 31 of Matthew 25, what we have here, of course, is the Olivet Discourse. Uh, when you read chapter 26, verse 1, it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. What sayings? Well, it begins in Matthew 24, verse 1, and it ends in Matthew 25, verse 46. This is the Olivet Discourse. And what we have is, as it was in the days of Noah, we have the parable of the fig tree. We have all Bible prophecy being fulfilled when Israel is gathered back in the land. That should perk up our ears because we're in that generation. It has a rapture verse, no man knows the day or the hour, verse 36 of 24. Only my father only, but it will be like the days of Noah. Uh, life will be casual. People will be walking their dogs, taking their jogs, doing everyday type stuff. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to come upon him. And the Lord gave the parable of the ten virgins. Ten, five are wise, five are foolish. It's a picture of the church. Some had oil, some didn't. Oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Uh, some... Uh, people who think they are Christians, like the Church of Laodicea, they thought they were rich. Um, their, their evaluation of themselves was quite different from what, how the Lord evaluated them. Uh, they thought they were rich, but he says, no, you're poor, you're blind, and you're miserable. <laughs> and so they had a wrong perception of them. And unfortunately, there are a lot of nice people, maybe nicer than you and me, doing a lot of good works that aren't going to heaven because your works have nothing to do with you going to heaven. Another good place for an amen. It's all about grace. It's all about grace and understanding grace. And so when we get to verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Well, when does he come? Well, he comes at the end of the battle of Armageddon. He's the one who puts it all to an end. So then, going back to Revelation 12, it talks about an event in the middle of the tribulation called the abomination of desolation. And then it says, 1,290 days later, 
we have the second coming. And then it says, blessed is he who comes to the uh, 1,335 day period of time. So what's going on during that 45 day period of time? Jesus has returned. He's about to set up the kingdom. There's evidently a 45-day period of time where God is going to judge the nations to determine whether or not who goes where, who is going to go into the kingdom, and who is going to go into everlasting judgment. So let's pick it up. Uh, Some people, and I'll show you where some people misquote this, but if we're keeping it in context, remember that the tribulation has nothing to do with the church. The great tribulation, chapter 6, verse 17, is the wrath of the Lamb. And it's being poured out over three different series of judgments, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. And they escalate in intensity as it progresses. And so when it's all over, and the earth is pretty much plummeted, I would, I would imagine... You've watched TV tonight probably like I did with Puerto Rico. You know, it's gone. They don't know if it'll ever recover. They have all these containers, but nobody to get there to drive the trucks to take them to them. It's not that there isn't supplies that are there. The island is so devastated that nobody can move, and there's no electricity. And the last judgment, the very last one, is hailstones weighing 120 pounds each plummeting the planet. That pretty much destroys planet Earth at the end of the, that's the last of the bowl judgments. Now, when that has happened, then verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, well, when did we see you hungry? And feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in and naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, as you did it unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Okay, let's just stop here. Who is he talking about? I don't think it's wrong to use these verses as missionary verses to um, help the poor. I mean, we made an announcement last Sunday that we're going to be taking a collection for Haiti this Sunday. It's a part of what we do, but it's not the main part. So when we talk about this in a missionary sense, that's not the context that it's in. This is after the church has been taken out, and he doesn't say, you've done it unto the least unto these, my church, or my bride, but he says, my brethren. And we're talking about how Jews were treated during the tribulation period. Um, Zacharias says, Jerusalem is going to become a cup of trembling. Nobody's going to know what to do with that country, Israel. And the city of Jerusalem in particular And in the center of that is the Temple Mount in particular. It will become a troublesome stone. How do we solve this problem? How do we treat the Jewish people? And so when we read this here, if I'm reading it in context, when he says the least of these, my brethren, he's talking about the Jewish people. Now remember, when I say Jewish people, I'm also talking about Moses and Elijah. Okay, and the 144,000 witnesses that are sealed, what do they do? What are they witnessing? Well, they're preaching the gospel. How do I know? Because when they finally kill Moses and Elijah, then who's preaching the gospel? Oh, now we've got an angel from heaven. 
that flies and preaches the everlasting gospel to every kindred tongue and nation. And that's when the whole world, that's, that's when Matthew 24, just flip a page here, go back to Matthew 24, verse 14, it says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, what's the last, when's the last time the gospel's preached, and who's preaching it? To every nation, tongue, and people. An angel. So that's where Matthew 25, verse 14 is fulfilled. And when I say Jews, the least of these my brethren, we would call them messianic believers. They did not take the mark of the beast. They believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they're still Jews. I mean, the, the first big shootout at the OK Corral, so to speak, was what are we going to do with these Gentiles? How do we treat them? Because now Cornelius was saved. Um, by the way, when we get to Jonah, God, Cornelius, wasn't the first one that was saved as a Gentile. The first Gentiles that were saved was the whole city of Nineveh. They were all Gentiles. And so he was dealing and showing compassion on Gentiles long before Cornelius. Okay? Now, when I read this, I, I see it as, as Israel. Verse 41, then he will depart to those on the other. Depart from me, cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. James B. DeYoung asked me to um, endorse his book. I thought, well, that's an honor to be asked to do something like that. He just wrote a book refuting William Paul Young's new book that, um, well, let me tell you this. This is a good story to tell. Ten years ago, The Shack came out. And he adamantly denied that the shack was about universalism. Now, if you don't know what universalism is, that is that eventually everybody is going to get saved. Now, in his new book, Lies William Paul Young Believes About God, he's asked the question straight out on page 118. Are you a universalist? And he says, absolutely yes. So what was absolutely no 10 years ago is an absolutely yes today. And uh, he made lots of money. Now they're making a movie out of it. Now he's selling more books. But uh, James B. DeYoung um, is writing his own book. Uh, He was an acquaintance. He's a theological professor in Washington. Brilliant man. I invited him to our pastor's conference next April. And uh, so we reconnected. But, you know, what can I say? William Paul Young uh, has got his own gospel. That is another gospel. And the guy's making it up as as he goes. And I wish I could talk more about that, but we'll be promoting the book. Um, it's going to the publisher now. So that'll, that'll be coming out shortly. So the rest of these I left off. Let's pick it up verse 42. And I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. I would have taken it a step farther. On the contrary, they did just the opposite uh, to the Jewish people. Then they will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison, did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you didn't do it unto me. How did you treat the Jewish people? Genesis 12, verse 3. Gang, do yourself a favor. Bless a Jewish person. <laughs> Love on them. Treat them special. Even if you have a bad motive in doing it. <laughs> you know, the Lord says, you know, if somebody gives a glass of water to somebody in my name, you're going to receive a reward for it because you did it in my name. And so, blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. Why did God hate Esau? Because Esau despised his birthright, but not Jacob. And so we find here, is, there, is universalism valid? Well, people love to hear that. I don't have to fear hell. I don't have to worry about eternal damnation. Uh, it doesn't, my logic says that's not fair, that's not right. Well, God is just. You know, tell that to a cop the next time he pulls you over, you're doing 16 and 25. He said, that's just not fair. I, was, I had an appointment. Yeah, well, 
I have a job. <laughs> and that's to give you a ticket. <laughs> and these will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. Gang, it all comes down to whether or not you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. This isn't gray. It's not a gray area here. What I just read is exactly what it means. And I dare not mess with it and touch it and say, well, there's a partial purgatory time after the rapture where you have to become an overcomer and then you get to enter into the kingdom. Well, where do you find that in the scriptures? Well, you don't. What do you find? This verse right here. So if I would sum up the book of Obadiah, let's go back, we're going into Jonah now. If I would sum up the book of Obadiah, it would be that they, instead of helping Israel, they actually stood in the way of Israel's defense, and that brings us to Jonah. Now, as we get into Jonah, what a great story. And this is where people lean upon their own understanding and actually laugh about it. You really believe that God allowed a fish, a whale, to eat a man, and he stayed alive in the stomach of a whale for three whole days, and he didn't die. You really expect me to believe that? All I can say to that is Jesus sure did. And as a result, let me give you a little bit of the background of of the book of Jonah. I'm going to put up on the screen where he's running to. He's going to run from where he's going to take a boat out of Joppa. And the ancient city of Nineveh is now called Mosul. And it is in Iraq. It's on the Tigris River. Now let's look at the first three verses of Jonah. In this book here, in chapter 1, we have Jonah leaving Israel. His destination is Nineveh, and he arrives in a fish. (laughs) Chapter 2, the fish delivers him to Nineveh on dry land. Chapter 3, he gives the message of repentance to Nineveh. And chapter 4, we have the nature of God revealed and the Lord providing shade for Jonah after he delivered his message. But Jonah was a contemporary of Jeroboam II. Now, I mentioned this several times that there's two Jeroboams in the ten kings of Israel. They had 19 kings. Uh, We have Saul, King David, and Solomon. And they each reigned for 40 years. And then you had Rehoboam. Well, he, he was the son of Solomon. But then you had Jeroboam the first. He was the one who rebelled. And he took the ten northern tribes, sometimes called Ephraim, sometimes called Israel. And we, we find that it was during the reign of Jeroboam the second that we have the time of the writing of the book of Jonah, roughly 782 to 753 B.C., so this would have been before the ten northern tribes have fallen. He ministered after the time of Elisha and just before the time of Amos and Hosea under Jeroboam II. It was a time of prosperity. Uh, Conditions looked promising after many bleak years. Uh, During these years, Assyria was in a period of mild decline. Weak rulers had descended to the throne, but Assyria remained a threat. By the time of Jonah, Assyria's cruelty had become legendary. Graphic accounts of their cruel treatment of captives have been found in ancient Assyrian records, especially from the 9th and 7th centuries. The repentance of Nineveh They had a couple of famines, and then they had a solar eclipse, which may have prepared the people for a message of judgment. And so all of us are flashing right now in the hurricanes and the floods and the the solar eclipse and wondering, do these things have anything to do with God's judgment? Three, Three category five hurricanes, bam, 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 one right after another. Gang, at the very least, they're birth pains. The winds and the seas raging. Uh, The point that I'll make here with this storm is it's supernatural. God sends a storm. And as soon as Jonah's thrown overboard, the storm stops. So yes, Satan is the prince of this world and the god of the air. And yes, he was the one that sent the windstorm that destroyed 
the house that uh, Job's kids were in, they were killed. That was, that was the enemy. But not this one. This one the Lord is causing the storm. And we find, just a little bit more background, both Nineveh and Babylon were built by Nimrod. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 10, verses uh, 10 and 11. It tells us in verse, well, let's go back and read about verse 8, Nimrod. Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty warrior on the earth, like a superstar. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So he is responsible for building Babylon in the land of Shinar. And uh, verse 10 Uh, From there he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. So this Nineveh that you're looking at right here today is called Mosul. And um, what the Assyrians were known for was their cruelty and how they led their captives out with fish hooks and they were brutal. And when I think of that, I think of ISIS and the cruelty of ISIS. And they destroyed things in Mosul. Um, I could pick out a lot. I picked out several pictures. There's a monument of the tomb of Jonah that existed till last year, until ISIS came to town. And the cruelty of ISIS, what are they known for? Talking arrogantly with masks on and then taking people's heads off and, and allowing it to be put on Facebook and the Internet. And um, I can't believe I'm even saying it. It's so disgusting. But that's the cruelty that existed then. But this we're talking last year, gang, 2016. This picture here that I'm putting up next is uh, the shrine to Jonah's uh, temple before ISIS got there last year. This is what it looks like today. That's what they did when they're done with it. Uh, they took artifacts not only from this, but many, many valuable um, pieces of antiquity and just destroyed them. Um, Just to give you a little uh, sense of uh, the cruelty and why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. It would be like going saying, let's take a, a missionary group and let's find some ISIS cells and see if we can share the gospel with them. Hands up, who wants to go? <laughs> and now I, I see what they did on that. And I said, Lord, um, I'm out of shape. But let me just have a couple good punches at one of these guys, and I will repent later. Later. You know, but let me just add a couple shots at them because of, of what they did to innocent people. And, and then to propagate it and to promote it and to flaunt it. And that's why this is, this is what's in Jonah's head. He's called by the Lord. Let's read the first three verses here. It says, And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa. Now, he's from the Galilee. And Joppa, we usually go there our first night when we get to Israel, um, or in the morning. Um, it's right next to Tel Aviv. It's in walking distance from our hotel last time we were there. And it's quaint. There's all these old buildings, and there's hilly, and it's got a charm to it. And... Um, Obviously, it's on the Mediterranean. So he goes down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish was founded by the Phoenicians, and it's on the southern coast of Spain. That's what most people think. There's an argument that others believe it's Britain, from where we get the word Britannia or um, tin, and so some make that connection. I'm not going to debate or be dogmatic over either one. But the point is, he goes in the opposite direction from where the Lord had called him. He paid the fare, went down into to go to Tarshish from the presence of 
the Lord. And uh, we'll have a topical on this on Sunday. Now, to get his attention in verses 4 through 16, the Lord is the one that sends the storm. But the Lord sent, a, see, it says, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. And the mariners were afraid, even every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo over uh, that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah was down into the lower parts of the ship had laid down and was fast asleep. Now you can't help but think about the storm on the Sea of Galilee. The Lord's fast asleep in the middle of a storm where all the sailors are freaking out. And um, the storm is calmed by a miracle. And the disciples say, even the winds in the sea obey him. I mean, there's a lot of similarities here. I haven't sat down and thought it through enough to connect all the dots. But it says, verse 6, So the captain came to him, and he said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us, and we won't perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we might know whose cause is the trouble that has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Well, this is occultism. This is like reading the tarot cards. My point is, is that it worked. And some of these um, occults and some of these other, well, just turn with me to quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 18. I go through this often, but uh, we should never, you know, roll our eyes when people get into things that say, well, there's nothing really there. They're just into it for a buck. There's no real uh, forces of power behind it. No, there really is. And Deuteronomy 18, verse 9 says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to do the abomination of those nations. Let me just say, casting lots. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes a son or daughter to pass through the fire, who practices witchcraft, a soothsayer or interpreter or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are abomination to the Lord. Because of these abominations, the Lord God drives them out before you. The demonic realm is real. Are there phonies out there um, that will read your palm and they don't have a clue and they're just hoping you're naive enough to fall for their whatever they say? (laughs) Yeah. But there's also those that are possessed with demonic spirits, just like the one that followed Paul around who had the familiar spirit of fortune-telling. And Paul got annoyed with her and cast the devil out. And the guys that were her pimp, um, spiritually speaking, her gift was gone. It was a demonic gift, but it was gone. So they dealt with it. They, 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 they went after Paul because he was the one responsible for casting this spirit out of this gal who had a familiar spirit. All right, let's go back to the great storm. Casting lots, well, uh, these are all heathens. But they figured out the lot fell upon Jonah. So they go after him in verse 8, and they said, Please tell us, um, for whose cause is this trouble come upon us? What's your occupation? What do you do? And where do you come from? What's your country? And what people are you? He said, Well, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, Oh, what shall we do so that the sea might be calm? And the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said, Well, you've got to pick me up and throw me into the sea. And then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more Temptuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish from this, for this man's life, and do not charge us uh, with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done it as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. 
So Jonah is cast overboard. The sea becomes calm. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from his fish's belly. Now again, one of the great things about going through the Bible time and time again is that you learn. And sometimes you learn things you've taught in the past. You've learned, well, that's not exactly true. Last time I taught through Jonah, I just said Jonah was so stubborn. You know, he didn't even pray until the third day. He was that stubborn of a guy. He didn't do it. Well, I found out as I'm reading this, you know, he cried out to the Lord right away. I said, I cried out to the Lord. So I have to correct myself. So we'll get rid of all those old tapes. (laughs) Because I think that's the last time we went through it. <laughs> no, he was, he was probably praying on the way down. I know I would have been. <laughs> I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. And you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. And the floods surrounded me. And your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The waters encompassed me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. So he's in, he's in the, the belly of a fish. I went down to the moorings of the mountain. The earth and its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And I'll just stop here because the scripture is coming to mind. There's, there's a, a psalm or a proverb, and it says, before I was afflicted, until I was afflicted, I went astray. That's what's going on here. He's going astray, but then he's being afflicted. And when he was afflicted, then he came back to the Lord. And sometimes, isn't that what we pray? Lord, he's not listening. (laughs) He's running as fast as he can in the other direction. Lord, I pray you do whatever it takes to bring them to you. I don't care if he's got to end up in some belly's fish for three days. Or let him end up in jail. Or let him get whatever. Just so he doesn't go to hell. Just so he returns and gets right with you. Jonah says, "When when I fainted, I remember the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy mountain. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercies. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed salvation is of the Lord. Turn with me to um, Luke chapter 11, verse 29. And when the crowds were thickly gathered together, He began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now, for those who believe that um, the book of Jonah is just a big fish story, I mean, we're Wisconsinites, right? We know what big fish stories are all about. (laughs) Except for the sign of the, the prophet Jonah, for as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. And she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. And the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus believed in Jonah, and Jesus refers to it, as long as we're in the New Testament, in Matthew, go to Matthew chapter 12, and we'll look at verse 40. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, We want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
Now what Luke doesn't say, Matthew does. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, that's a better translation than whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. All right, back to Jonah. The deliverance of Jonah in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 10, through, well, the last verse of this one. So the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out on dry land. Now, there's nothing more disgusting than vomit. You'd have to know my dad. He is a prankster. I think I've told the story about the lake flies. When, um, if you live on Lake Winnebago and you have lake flies, um, my dad was the type who took out a full-page ad in the Northwestern and said, lake flies, problem? Call. And then he put his best friend's telephone number down. And he got calls and calls and calls and calls. And we had a, we had a whole dump truck load of three-quarter-inch gravel on our driveway the next weekend. You reap what you sow. Well, one of the other things he would do just to embarrass us kids is, I don't know if you've ever seen this, and I'm probably going to gross some people out at this point. Did you ever see the, the fake vomit made out of rubber? Some of you have. Well, if we had the family together just to, just to get us as the kids, he would take the fake vomit and put it down there and go, Whoa! <laughs> and then he'd take some of his soup and, to make it look real. And everybody's looking over and we're going, oh, Dad, don't do it again. And so vomit is disgusting is the point. <laughs> what do you suppose he looked like? It said he had weeds wrapped around his head. He's in there for three days. You know, usually there's some sort of digestive chemicals and acid in there. He probably came up bleached out <laughs> with weeds on his hair. And now he's this raging prophet uh, walking through Nineveh, chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly great city, a three days journey in extent. Today there are 1.5 million people, but a lot of them, are, this is a lot of where the Kurds are. They're Christians there. And um, um, it was a huge city. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the word came to the king of Nineveh, And he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. In other words, fast. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. And who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we will not perish? Here we have the only recorded evangelical message where there was 100% success rate. Everyone in Nineveh repented. Then God saw their works that they had turned from their evil ways, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. It reminds, it reminds me of, of Abraham and Lot. And, um, you know, Lord, if there's just ten there, would you destroy it if there's just ten? No, not. If you can find ten, I won't destroy it. But... Uh, uh, they didn't repent, and there wasn't ten, and Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. So, he doesn't do it. Now, Jonah knew it all along. 
because he knew the nature and the character of his God. And so what we have in chapter 4, it's only 11 verses, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. 100% revival. Imagine preaching for this many people, three days walk around the city, and everybody repents. And God's not going to bring judgment. Well, that should be a glory hallelujah day if there ever was one. Now, as far as Jonah's concerned, he goes off and pouts. I knew you were going to do that. I knew you. I know who you are. I knew if I went here, this was going to happen. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was in my country? That's why I fled from your presence to Tarshish. For I know that you are gracious, merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. For anybody who thinks they've crossed the line and there's no way back, no, you'll never be as bad as ISIS, and you'll never be bad as the Ninevites or the Assyrians. They were the worst of the worst, but they all got saved because they repented because of the Lord's not willing that any should perish. But more in particular here is an issue with the children, and we'll end with this tonight. Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me. I want to die. It'd be better for me to die than to live. I had this great revival and everybody got saved, and now I want to die. Then the Lord says, and this is a question, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, and Jonah pouted, and he went out of the city, and he sat on the east side of the hill, hoping the Lord had changed his mind. Then he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade that he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. Now, I, th- I think he was probably, the hair was gone after the fish, three days in a belly of the fish. So Jonah was grateful for the plant. Boy, this is a great plant, Lord. But in the morning, the next day, God prepared a worm. And so it damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun rose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wanted to die again for himself and said, it's better for me to die than to live. And then God said to Jonah, question, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. And the Lord says, you're going to have pity on a plant from which you have not labored. You didn't make it grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night. And the key verse, you're having pity on a plant You're having a pity party, Jonah? Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city where more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and also much livestock? He's talking about children. You see, with the ones who knew what they were doing, there was 120,000 kids that were just victims of the lifestyle of their parents. You don't want me to have pity on the children? They don't know their right hand from their left hand? And so the book of Jonah ends with this rebuke where he's compassionate on a plant. It's like save the whales, you know. And, and the times in which we live today, everybody's looking for a cause. They want, they want their life to count for something. So they're coming up with some, let's join Greenpeace or Save the Whales or you name it because it gives them some sort of purpose and meaning in life. But really, the only real purpose and meaning in life is having compassion for those that are lost and understanding we have our nature that can pity a whale and could care less about the millions that have been aborted since Roe v. Wade in 73. And we don't think anything of it. 
And so that is just sort of a little teaser for where we're going to go on Sunday morning. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, as we read these two books tonight, especially Jonah, um, we so identify with Jonah's nature and um, being a respecter of people that you love, even people in ISIS and Hezbollah, and as we're going to see on Sunday, Samaritans. And you're not willing that any should perish because you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. You're not willing that any should perish. And you've chosen human instruments like us to do your work. And so, Lord, as we consider the book of Jonah this evening, make us more like you and help our hearts to break for the things that they should be broken for and help us have a cause that really means something. And that is denying ourselves and picking up our cross and fulfilling the great commission that you didn't suggest, but that you commanded us to do. So we thank you for Jonah. In Jesus' name, amen.